insulting and demeaning the Po Po Boys. This week, we talked a lot about buses and transit. We'll bring you the hot details on all the motions, amendments, and lack of subsequence. You won't want to miss it. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking, Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 125, where Robert's rules of orders are the hot goss of the day. You don't want to miss the rest of this episode where we're going to get into the details of motions, amendments, procedures, bylaws. Oh boy, have I lost all our listeners, Matt? <laughs> I hope not. It'll be interesting. We promise. We're going to get them back in the rapid fire segment. A new website launched this week for the Edmonton Region Hydrogen Hub, stylized as capital H-U-B, which is clearly the product of a UOA alumnus whose mind jumped straight to ho-hos when they thought of plentifully available gas. With uncertainty around vaccine rollout timelines and widespread variants of concern, the Edmonton Folk Fest announced this week that the 2021 festival would be cancelled in the largest blow to Edmonton culture since the Oilers stopped being a team that makes the playoffs. We spoke to a group of 20-somethings on White Avenue, enjoying some cannabis while wearing their newly thrifted mom jeans, who told us that the cancellation of the Folk Fest means just another year of, quote, honestly not really knowing what I'm going to do. The group, who would have to spend another year pretending to have a personality now that their only defining trait, attending Folk Fest, was taken away once again, did say that they were cautiously optimistic that maybe they could just post a lot about composting this year. A controversial bill that allowed ministers to unilaterally amend legislation by ministerial order is being repealed. Health Minister Tyler Shandro, after quickly leaning back and getting a thumbs up from Jason Kenney, said, quote, Laws shouldn't be passed just because we say so and we want them to be. It's important that they go through the process of being introduced to the floor, invoking closure on debate before being voted on by all members of the caucus who are instructed to vote the way Premier wants them to. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. This episode is brought to you by the Edmonton Community Foundation. The ECF acts as a bridge between donors and charities to create strong, vibrant community for generations to come. You can start an endowment fund yourself or with a group. Once it reaches $10,000, it can start distributing funds. Vital Signs is an annual checkup conducted by the Edmonton Community Foundation in partnership with the Edmonton Social Planning Council to measure how the community is doing. This year's focus is on millennials. You can learn more at ecfoundation.org. Smack, this week we've got a lot to talk about transit. And I think we're going to start off the top with the big transit item, not in terms of news, but in terms of size and scope. And that's the new Regional Transit Commission found a CEO. That's right. They've hired Paul Jankowski, who is a born and raised Edmontonian, as the new CEO of the Edmonton Metropolitan Transit Services Commission. Uh, Jankowski is currently the commissioner of the Regional Municipality of York's Transportation Services Department. He'll start here in the role on May 17th. I've found it very difficult to care about the RTSC in the past. Uh, we've talked about it before on the podcast. And as much as it's ambitious and as much as I agree with the goals of regional transit, I do find it sort of hard to care, especially because Strathcona County is still not on board. Right. But, you know, finding a CEO, they've officially been certified by the province as a society that can operate. This all seems like it's a very real thing, and I should be caring about it. But I, I just can't quite yet do it. I think it's because 
this is kind of like smart fair in some ways. It feels like it's always just been ahead of us. Like we were making progress toward this. And and now that we're actually finally making progress, you're just waiting for them to say, no, it's been delayed again. The Transit Commission says it's going to start operations within the next year. But what will that even mean? Like, you know, they're going to have some sort of a phased integration. Like we're, we're going to have a commission without actually seeing the benefits, I think, of regional transit for quite some time. And on top of that, I'm an Edmontonian. I think other players in the region, especially places like Fort Saskatchewan or Leduc that may have very little transit service. I know when I want to go visit my family in Fort Saskatchewan, when such things were legal, there was one bus that ran peak hours. Right. So having those regional partners have increased transit, that's probably going to affect their day to day. But ETS is essentially going to run the RTSC. That's essentially how it's going to work. So f- as an Edmontonian, I don't know that much will change for me. Uh, the other reason you might not be super excited is because there's a whole bunch of boring stuff to happen still. Jankowski said his first order of business essentially is to start establishing relationships. That's what all new CEOs basically say when they come in. So they've got some time before they they get up to speed and we actually start to see the results. And maybe we'll get Strathcona County in to join the eight that are participating. Maybe not. I guess we'll see just how good Jankowski is at facilitating communication with regional partners. Yikes, I got shivers just saying that. Let's talk about something else. There was some big news this week, and it was still about transit. And you probably have heard about it because there was a lot of ruckus. Transit fares were set to go to committee for the endorsement of an increase, and committee gave the blessing. Edmonton's executive committee on April 13th okayed the increase from 350 to 375 with the caveat that smart fare users, once it's implemented, will get it for three bucks. Yeah, I love the smart fare part of this report. It's like they snuck that in there just as a way to make the cash increase seem a little bit more palatable because like, where is this mythical smart fare? Like, I have no idea when this is going to happen. I know Carrie Hot and McDonald promised us it's on its way, but but really, until I see it, it's just sort of like vaporware, you know? Uh, but the cash increase goes from 350 to 375 as you said. That was supposed to happen in February, actually, but it was postponed till May. So council still votes on this, but with the endorsement, it seems very likely that this will take effect starting in May. I only heard pretty staunch opposition to this, you know, people from the Free Transit Edmonton group saying, oh, you know, this will decrease ridership or this will hurt people who already have the least or any number of pretty legitimate complaints against it. Why did council decide to go forward with it? What's what's the upside? I mean, the big problem that they are facing is a lack of revenue. So because ridership was down so much during the pandemic, sales and revenues were also down significantly. And the report said that they'd have to make up close to a million dollars, $870,000 in budgeted revenues next year in 2022 if they rejected this increase. And I mean, it's probably a sign of things to come because it's supposed to go up again by the end of the year to $4. Um, and the budget discussion last December, there was already quite a bit of discussion from Andrew Knack and others that we have one of the country's highest rates already and uh, to continue increasing it without, you know, materially improving service. I guess we'll see how the bus network redesign rolls out is a hard pill for a lot of people to swallow, especially because for other reasons, uh, the pandemic, people still aren't getting back on buses and trains. I picked up a tandem bike this weekend and the nature of a tandem bike means it doesn't really fit in your car. You got to go to the bike shop and you got to take two of you and you got to bike it back. It was actually very difficult to get to Revolution Cycle in the West End because 
we didn't want to get on a bus. Um, you know, I have my vaccine. My partner doesn't quite yet have the vaccine. And getting the vaccine maybe in three weeks from now, we just don't want to take any unnecessary risks. Sure. So we didn't want to get on a bus. And I don't think I'm the only one in that scenario. So to make the bus already more expensive, I was reticent to ride the bus when it was $325. At $4, I'm not getting on that bus. I'm cheap. Yeah, I mean, especially depending on where you need to go, it, it really makes scooters look affordable, Ubers, all kinds of other options, right? There are plenty of, of transportation options in addition to obviously walking or, or cycling. If we got much better service, I think it would be an easier pill to swallow. And if it was here, SmartFare, I think it would also make a big difference. Now, if I were to read between the lines on this report, I would say that this is another instance of ETS and the city at large subsidizing white collar workers off the backs of poor people. Because if you look closely at these fare increases, it's only the single usage fare. Right. It's a cash fare. Yep. If you're buying a pack of 10 tickets, if you're buying a monthly pass, none of those prices increase. Right. And the cash fare went up a good, what is it, 7 or 8%. So it's a non-trivial increase. If your taxes went up 7 or 8%, you can bet that Prosperity Edmonton would be protesting. To have that big of an increase, well, who is paying the single-use cash fare? It's not the people who are working downtown. It's not the people who can afford to put up uh, $30 for a 10-pack of tickets. It's the people who are scrapping by and they are able to get change when they have it and get a $250 fare evasion ticket when they don't. The confirmation that I have that this is like, oh, okay, we're making this off the back of poor people was because smart fare is going to be cheaper. If we needed the fare to be $375 to make up the usage of the transit system, why would smart fare be materially cheaper? I get that handling cash has some cost associated with it. Yeah. I don't think it has a quarter of the total ETS costs are cash handling. Yeah, I mean, maybe not quite that much. I mean, there's definitely a cost associated with that. And so that's got to be a consideration. I think the other argument in favor of the the, the decrease or the lower rate for smart fare is that you you can take advantage of all of the discounts you get from, say, a monthly pass without having to put the money up front because it's capped. So you use that $3 and you use it until you hit that monthly cap and then you're not charged anymore. That's one of the things that SmartFare enables that you simply can't do with cash. So, I mean, the report kind of positioned it as a positive thing, even for those who are not able to, to, to front the money for a whole pass right up front. And I can kind of buy that argument. And I think it depends on how we roll it out and how easy it is for people who are less fortunate perhaps, to get access to SmartFare. Even if it is the case that, you know, this is a good thing, it's definitely a bad thing. Um, <laughs> when you hear the argument from people like Free Transit Edmonton saying that, you know, if you look back at the history of fare increases, every time we increase fares, ridership declines. And do we need a ridership decline at this point in time when we're at the height of pandemic when ridership is already lowest? And they want the answer to that question to be, no, we don't want ridership to decline. I'm not convinced that the goal here isn't to reduce ridership. The thing about public transit in the city of Edmonton is it's two-thirds tax subsidized. Every reduction of a rider on ETS saves the city money. Uh, granted, it saves the city immediate money in the same way that stopping repairing potholes saves the city money. We've been here before. The mayor talks constantly about the deficits we've had in the past by neglecting to do proper maintenance and neglecting to invest in our future, as we know transit does. But from a purely like fiduciary standpoint of balancing this year's budget, 
yeah, if you can kick everyone off transit, you're in the clear. You make a lot of money. Is that true, though? I mean, they have to run a certain level of service regardless of how many people are on there, right? I mean, there's there's a certain amount of sunk cost, isn't there? There is and there isn't, though, because we showed during the pandemic that we were pretty ready, willing, and able to, when ridership declines pretty sharply, to switch to Saturday service on certain routes, to decommission routes right. pretty much on a dime. I don't think like on a day-to-day basis, but you know, if transit fares go up and suddenly ridership goes down 10%, I think you can bet that we're going to stop running as many buses if we're seeing a sharp decline in ridership. Yeah, no, that's fair. Do you do you actually agree with Free Transit Edmonton that this change is going to result in lower ridership though? Because as you said, we have choices. I don't ever pay cash fare. I buy ticket strips or a, or a monthly pass. And if I'm doing a calculation about which is the, the most affordable option for me to, to use to travel around the city, I'm not comparing it to the cash fare at all. So whether that goes up or down has no bearing on whether or not I'm going to ride this. And the people that are forced to pay the cash fare are usually the people that don't have another option. And they're going to ride that bus no matter what. So is ridership really going to drop that much? Anecdotally, sure, I agree with your assessment there. And I understand where you're coming from. And I can't find anything that you said to disagree with, except that we've seen time and time again that it does. Okay, so we have some historical evidence. Yeah, evidence has shown that this is true, that increasing transit fares basically has a direct proportional decrease in ridership. Let's talk about city council going way off topic with our good old friend of the podcast, John D from Ward 3. And he had a good old 11 to 2 failed motion that he put forward this week. Yeah, we mentioned this before, but his motion was that the bus network redesign implementation be delayed to further consultation. Uh, So there was new stories about this previously when he gave notice that he wanted to bring this up. At first, Troy, I thought this is such a stupid thing. Like, we're going to talk about it for two minutes on the podcast and say, John D, thanks for wasting everybody's time. But I listened to this part of the meeting and watched it back and, and thought about it a little bit more. And I find myself somewhat sympathetic to Councillor Zadok's position. Yikes. Who are you and what did you do with Mac? <laughs> well, so when he introduced the motion, well, for, well, we'll get to what the mayor said, but when uh, Councillor Zadok was able to introduce the motion, he basically said he was following the better late than never school of thought on, on this. Um, and he, he tried to make the case that we know more now than we did in the past. And so that's why it's appropriate to bring this conversation up. He voted no to the bus network redesign previously. And he said he wasn't, you know, trying to revisit the whole thing outright. He was just trying to do his part to make it better. He was trying to represent the people that elected him to do this. And the biggest complaint he had is that on-demand transit is almost non-existent in the north side. It's not strictly true. If you look at the map, there is some service in the north side, but it's mostly in neighborhoods to the south side. And his issue is that because it's a pilot for two years, that's not going to be revisited. And so those neighborhoods that he represents that were not eligible for on-demand transit don't even get a chance to make their case for another two years until the pilot is done. And so he felt like he had to bring this forward. And I found myself thinking that, you know, I think what's unequivocally true is that he should have done it sooner. A 10 days before the rollout of this thing is way too late in the game to bring this forward. But I understand where he's coming from. And, and I understand that he wasn't trying to be obstinate or or obstructionist about this. He legitimately felt like he was doing what he had to do to represent the people who who voted for him. I'm not sure I agree with your editorializing right at the end. There's no evidence to support that he wasn't being obstinate, but he was able to justify 
his obstinance. Yeah, he made it sound a little more palatable. Did the motion get on the floor? So it did, and they spent an hour and 18 minutes on this, which is why, you know, back to the kind of a waste of time. It's kind of a waste of time. Because we knew this was going to fail. We knew it was going to fail, absolutely. But a, a big portion of the time at the beginning, at least, was spent on whether or not this could actually be put on the floor. And the mayor, who had to allow Councillor Zadig to put this on the floor, said this. I have reflected at length as chair on whether this motion is in order. Given that Councillor Zadig voted against BNR previously, albeit more than a year ago thanks to COVID delays, but more to the point because I gather irrevocable action such as assigning routes and shifts to transit operators for next month has already occurred. However, given the build-up to this uh, and the public interest in this question, I think as chair it may be in the public interests to allow the motion onto the floor and some questions to be asked uh, rather than the rules used to block such a discussion uh, from even happening. I'm going to err on the side of uh, having the discussion uh, at this point rather than shut down debate prematurely. So he was struggling with this about whether or not this should even be allowed to go forward. But ultimately, he decided that Councillor Zadek could put the motion on the floor and it was seconded by Mike Nickel, who of course is the other vote that was alongside Zadek. Slipping into Iveson's shoes here, you don't want to relitigate old decided issues because you don't want to flip-flop and, you know, have seven, six votes, become six, seven votes the right. next day. That could be gross. I think it gives Iveson a lot of breathing room to have the discussion, knowing that there is no way that this motion passes. Yeah, that might have been a factor in his decision, knowing that there's no way it passes. It's better to at least allow, you know, Zadok and whoever to say their piece and then be able to move on. And, and Councillor Zadok did say, like, at one point, he said, after this vote today, I'll leave it alone. Like he, he was sort of trying to thank his colleagues for giving him the time and then say, I'm not going to keep doing this, right? Like this is my last kick at the can, so to speak. So um, the motion got on the floor. They talked about it for an hour and 18 minutes. I assume everyone said some aspect of, hey, you missed the bus on this one. Sorry. Was there anything interesting that came up in the debate? I mean, it was actually Councillor Zadig that had the best singers of it. He talked about, as I said, the lack of on-demand transit and said there's a gap wide enough to drive a bus through it. And he sort of paused <laughs> momentarily <laughs> and you could see some of the councillors smirk on the video. But no, there wasn't that much interesting from the actual debate about this. I mean, as we we, we all knew where it was going, Councillor Knack and Councillor Henderson asked a bunch of questions as they want to do, but it didn't really go anywhere. No. Um, the, the most interesting part, I suppose, was almost right at the beginning when Councillor Paquette indicated that he might have a, a motion that he'd like to make, a subsequent. And uh, the mayor said, well, you can't really have a subsequent if the motion fails. So he was already anticipating that this was going to fail. He's like, I'm having some discussions about this with the clerk. Probably you'd have to give notice of motion is, is how they discussed it. So what was he trying to get done? Well, I mean, this is probably the argument in favor of John Zadek wasting time because what Paquette's motion says is that the administration should bring a report back that has an accelerated review of the successes and shortfalls of routes, timing and frequency, high-level strategy for more routes to determine where the need is and where demand is, and to bring recommendations forward for a predictable, sustainable funding formula to make incremental but impactful increases to the transit system. So, you know, everything that Zadok was trying to accomplish in a more constructive way of, of going about it, I think. According to this process, he had to give notice of motion here, which means he would get this motion introduced today, but 
it wouldn't be voted on or heard by council until the next regular council meeting, which is 14 days from that meeting. If you look at the calendar, that puts us at or after the actual launch of the bus network redesign, right. which politically you want to get the motions about the bus network redesign done before the thing launches. I was speculating, perhaps this is why I'm not a counselor, but I was looking and I'm thinking, under Robert's rule of orders, what if Aaron Paquette had amended John D's motion to read something like, oh, that the mayor on behalf of city council write a letter to ETS congratulating it on the bus network redesign, which will certainly move forward. Everyone votes in favor of such a motion. Right. And then he attaches his new motion as a subsequent. Could he have done that and could he have saved that two weeks? I think it's a really fascinating idea. And I, you know, my sort of rudimentary understanding of the rules is that that would have worked. I don't know if they could have declared that mo- that amendment friendly or if they would have all had to vote on that. But either way, it seems like you might have found a way to accomplish what they were trying to do. We'll have to send an email to the mayor, ask if he'd rule that. Rules lawyering about Robert's rules aside, the motion failed and go figure, the bus network redesign is going to continue as planned. Yep. And I think we can call that a nice little button. We've resolved this issue. We'll get back to it later. One issue that doesn't seem to have a resolution and it seems to go on and on is policing in Edmonton. We've talked at length about all aspects of policing, whether it's about the budgets, whether it's about racism or systemic bias in the police service. And we've often talked about it from a frame of activists or community members or people speaking to city council, sharing their stories that are shocking and difficult to hear, but open our eyes. The police union seems to draw issue with us talking about those stories. And in fact, drew issue with the uh, community safety task force report that was filed before council just a couple weeks ago. Yeah, this week we heard about a letter from the president of the Edmonton Police Association. So there's a bit of letter soup when we talk about policing. The A, the association, is the labor union, the union of police officers. And so he sent this letter to members and he called the report, quote, insulting and demeaning end quote. And he said that it used anti-police biases and stereotypes and was generally just really upset about the report. Not really seeming to consider that two police officers and two members of the police commission were all part of the task force that produced this report and recommendations. Uh, So when I read that, I was like, did we read the same report? I don't know who advised the union president that, yeah, this is the thing to say. But when we're talking about problems with systemic bias and systemic racism in policing, we often talk about the thin blue line, the idea that police officers will not turn on each other. They will back each other no matter what, how egregious the circumstances are. And to look at this report, which was quite justified in the frame of everything that has happened, and like you said, had whole smattering of broad perspectives put on it, to call it insulting and demeaning basically sounds like the union president coming out for a strong, thin blue line as the way he wants to go forward with this. And he knew what he was doing when he made those remarks, when he sent that letter. He said, sometimes you need difficult language to stir a true conversation to get things moving. And I think that's what the letter has done. He, he knew he would get a reaction out of this from people like me <laughs> and, and others. And I guess it worked from that point of view. But it just seems completely at odds with the kind of response that he should have made, which is that there's a lot 
to learn from this report and lots of work to be done. And we're committed to open dialogue and doing the work or, you know, something that you would expect a person in his position to, to bring forward in response. I think most of us reacted like you and I had reacted like, well, that's dumb. We're not buying into the outrage machine. One take that I found pretty baffling came from a Ward 6 counselor, retiring and outgoing counselor, Scott McKean, who said, quote, the Black Lives Matter and defund the police hearings we held were a shout of outrage. And now we're finally getting the responding shout of outrage from the police. I think it's totally fair, end quote. Terrible take. Absolutely terrible take. And especially from the counselor who, you know, represents the downtown ward where I think it's fair to say a lot of the conflict between disenfranchised and racialized groups and the police occurs. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Councillor Cartmel had a much more palatable, sane take on this. He, he, he called the language provocative and inflammatory and said that council's role is to try to take the temperature down in the conversation. Uh, he could see what kinds of problems that that letter and, and his subsequent comments, the president's subsequent comments would make. So, I mean, the president took issue with the language in, in the report or with the purported findings of the report. Members of the task force have said that that is not the language to use and that was not the findings of the report. The other thing, of course, that he mentioned was that 14th recommendation, which is around or has been called by Nickel and others, the defund the police recommendation, even though that's really not what it's about. And Elliot said, the president said that there's increasing violent crime and gun seizures and that it ignores those things. And then he basically accused the task force of using racism to promote its own version of anti-racism because he talked about how the recommendations would jeopardize the rights of the union's collective agreement and could force the police to use different criteria to hire, promote, and retain officers, which... I don't understand the argument he's making at all. It just seems crazy to me. I mean, ignoring any potential merits his argument might have, I don't think there's many there, but let's say he had a cohesive argument there about goals. Using racism as a justification for anti-racism? That's the definition, right? Like, it's called anti-racism <laughs> for a reason. Right. Yeah, I mean, he's and he's putting a hypothetical here. He's right. We're like, would the task force then dismiss longer-serving police officers based on skin color if layoffs ever become necessary? Like, where did that come from? That is absolutely not a recommendation or even close to a suggestion in the task force report. These are some discussions we'd like to leave behind and just move past. Uh, one thing that is being conclusively left behind is Tech Edmonton. Uh, we've talked about this a lot in the past. It's the incubator for businesses that was jointly run by the U of A and the city of Edmonton. You may have seen it downtown when you walk by Enterprise Square. There's the little window and it has a little tech logo on it. And you're like, what's tech? I don't know. Well, you won't have to know anymore because it's shutting down by June 30th. Yeah, this is a result of the story that we've talked about in the past where the city's made changes to its innovation strategy. So by that, I mean it's moved innovation out of EEDC. It created Innovate Edmonton as a new entity, which we've covered on the show in the past. There was always a bit of a question around what would happen to Tech Edmonton, Startup Edmonton, some of these other brands and entities. And, and now we know the answer to Tech Edmonton. It's going to be shut down. The city, of course, made their changes, but the U of A also has made changes to their innovation strategy. When tech was started in 2006, it was seen as maybe innovative or, or perhaps even a little bit in vogue to create a new entity where 
tech commercializ research commercialization would go. So all of the research that's done at the U of A, we want to turn that into products and businesses and make a lot of money. We're going to send that over to tech. There's going to be people from the U of A and people from industry, and they're going to come together to make that happen. And in the 15 years since, it has really become uh, the, the norm that that happens within the universities themselves and that uh, there isn't this separate entity, that it's much better done within the university. And, and there's maybe a little bit of permission now for universities to do that work. So the U of A has brought that tech transfer, that research commercialization part back internally. And when they did that, you know, combined with the city making its changes, uh, it just became inevitable that Tech Edmonton didn't have a place with those two partners. And I do wonder, we have a funding formula for provincial universities upcoming that, you know, universities will get funding based on outcomes, you know, job placements, innovation, uh, commercialization of their research, those sorts of things will determine provincial funding going forward. Obviously, this wouldn't have factored necessarily into this decision. It was a long time coming. But like you said, the frameworks being set up within the university, I wonder how the university seen the writing on the wall that this sort of thing, this sort of commercialization of the university's research was coming and they were planning for it. Yeah, I think that's a fairly, uh, you know, fair observation that the ground is shifting all around them. And this is potentially just another move to better take advantage of that shifting ground. Things are shifting all around us, but you can keep track of all these shifts and other shifts with the Shift podcast by Alberta Innovates. Shift showcases the work being done in the province's innovation ecosystem, everything from health to clean energy. Join hosts Katie Dean and John Hagen as they interview the researchers, entrepreneurs, and businesses that are shifting our perspective about innovation in the province. The latest episode looked at hemp, described as a global miracle crop. And, well, you ask those 20-year-old teens on White Ave, and they'll agree with you. You can find Shift Podcast by Alberta Innovates on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can also find it at shift.albertainnovates.ca. That's shift.albertainnovates.ca. And that's all for this week. We've been talking the past few weeks about People's Agenda listening sessions, and we're coming up pretty close to the end of them now, aren't we? Yeah, we're coming to the end of our first uh, set of listening sessions on the eight topics that were first identified. So uh, on Thursday this week, April 15th, we talked about housing. Uh, there's two more to go. Uh, April 22nd, will we act on climate change? And April 29th, will we build our city intelligently? So lots of uh, interesting conversations, I'm sure, to be had. And then we'll be incorporating all of the feedback that we've continued to hear from people into an updated draft of the People's Agenda. Well, you can look for that on taprootedmonton.ca or edmonton.taproot.news, wherever you want to go. But as always, we'll be back next week in your little ear holes right on the Speaking Municipally feed. Until then, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking, Speaking Municipally. Municipally.